All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for bringing us all together in this wonderful blessing, this local assembly on a hill in a town that, frankly, desperately needs the gospel more than ever. What a blessing it is to be joint laborers, even stewards of your grace in such a way that others might enjoy eternal life by means of your salvation plan through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that our hearts be ever open and humble to the truth and that those we encounter by your grace see your Son's precious love and compassion in each of us. May that experience be something that brings them to their own knees as beggars of mercy. We pray also, Father, for those still struggling, whether in our own congregation or otherwise, and we pray that they seek and find the truth that sets them free. We do ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation, part 14, of what we are calling the difficult passages, and we've seen uh, quite a few already, on the topic of grace. Uh, Works has been alluded to several times, uh, even approached uh, several times, but we haven't focused wholly on works. We've been focusing our attention on grace and how grace is often perverted. And once you understand those perversions and realize that that's what they are, and you get grace straight in your own soul, then works are just sort of a, I don't want to say a byproduct, but an easy thing to realize uh, in terms of what the Bible has to say on works. And so our emphasis, not surprisingly, has been on, on grace Uh, knowing that once we understand grace wholly and accurately, works are really not a confusing or, quote, difficult thing at all. It's only difficult when you have grace somehow perverted in your soul and you come upon passages that talk about works. That's when the confusion comes in. And so hopefully you appreciate the way the Spirit's been going about this thing. Uh, Quickly reviewing this past week's labor for the sake of continuity, Up here on the board, this should get us situated this morning. God saves, man resists. God saves, man resists. You know, the disciples asked uh, after Jesus spoke of the camel and the eye of the needle, etc. Then who can be saved? It just seems difficult, obviously, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And so they obviously asked, practically, you know, then who can be saved if that's how difficult it is? Well... With people, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that really does set the stage, doesn't it? That man cannot, is literally and infinitely unable to save himself. Only God saves. And so anything to do with salvation, all of it, is God's good work by grace. And we cannot add or subtract to that formula, if you would which we might call, more appropriately, the gospel, the good news. How does God save? 
the attitude of humility and surrender is hard to come by because the flesh resists such things. This is what makes it difficult. Uh, it's, not go- it's not difficult for God to save anyone. It's only difficult from our perspective because our own flesh loves the self-life, loves the mire that we roll around in, um, that which we are born in, which is total depravity. So that's where the difficulty comes in. And it's, it's the same difficulty, the sort of the vestiges of sin. We know that if we're saved, we're delivered from sin. But we still have a flesh, and so we talk about the vestiges, sort of the leftovers of sin itself. And so anytime even the spiritual life becomes difficult, it's still because of the vestiges of sin. It's still because the flesh itself has an attraction to dead things, to spiritually dead things, to the self-life, those things that we've uh, left behind at salvation. And so that's where the confusion comes in. If we were able to just for a moment, um, you know, wholly identify with the new creature, then we would never be confused. That's heaven. No more tear, no more sorrow, no more anything, no more confusion, nothing. Just complete ultimate sanctification or ultimate deliverance from the very presence of sin. That's heaven. So we need to elevate our thinking here before we even get started. Think of it this way that, you know, God is grace. Think of it that way. God is grace. The concept of grace is fundamental, not only to the gospel, but to God himself. He's intrinsically gracious. He is love. And as we've learned many times, grace is an expression of God's love. So the concept of grace is really fundamental. It's transcendent. God is grace. So the concept of it, not only to the gospel, but to God himself, it is fundamental. Up here on the board, we see this in Scripture in his expression, 1 Timothy 2.4, that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because God is grace. That's what He wants. He wants to give. God really likes to give a lot. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So we mustn't forget that God, though He is judging and He has the right to judge, being sovereign, is also absolutely fair, compassionate, and loving. We mustn't forget these things. Humility. God loves humble creatures. We understand what His will is. He wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of Him. So He gives us every possible opportunity by grace, every faculty to understand these things. And He has his own spirit, God the Holy Spirit, impressing these things upon even unbelievers when given the gospel, but certainly even more so believers after salvation, keep impressing these things. This is his desire for his children. God loves humble creatures and he graces them out. Knowing this is wisdom, given by grace. You see that? Even understanding the basics is just another form of his grace. Remember, we're born in darkness. We can't see grace until God illuminates it out of darkness 
Knowing this is wisdom even given by grace. Proverbs 8, 17, 11, 27. I'll give you 8, 17 up here in the board. Proverbs 8, 17. I, wisdom, love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Yeah. I love those who love me. Go to James 1.22. James wrote about being doers of the Word and proving ourselves this way. James 1.22. So there are certain activities in the spiritual life that we must address theologically. What does it mean? What is God's will? What is His desire? Uh, When He saves us, what is His intent? What have we been predestined for? What does it mean to walk? By means of the Spirit, even. What is the Spirit motivating to us? Or what is the Spirit motivating us to do? James 1.22, But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Up here on the board, I'll give you a little bit on prove yourselves. It refers to James's emphasis on truly saved people being doers. I've given you, uh, we had a short series on what it means to be. Not just do, but actually be this person, to become something. Not just be a doer, so to speak. But here he's saying, basically, truly saved people being doers, not just those who, quote, do something, like those who are merely hearers who delude themselves. And this is to miscalculate the way professing unsaved Christians do, even. This is what James is saying. Prove yourselves. In other words, it's actually going to be proof. And as Scripture has taught us, that a lot of that proof is actually works. We'll get to that. But here James is emphasizing what the truly saved person is, that they are to be doers, so to speak, not merely those who hear and delude themselves. That is a gross miscalculation that many suffer. So let's talk brass tacks for a second. It's entirely, listen up, it's entirely possible that a person receives the word and goes out and, quote, does it for the sake of themselves. It's entirely possible for someone to hear a command, let's say, in the Word of God, and they go out and they do it, but they do it with the wrong motivation. They do it for the sake of themselves. In other words, their eyes have never left themselves. If it's an opportunity to somehow gain something, for the self-life, they may just do it. In other words, the self loves itself this much. It will even go to church, show up to church, so that mom and dad, a grandma, a grandpa will say, you're such a nice little boy or girl, I'm so proud of you, you came to church. What was the motivation? Who is that for? You see, the flesh can pervert anything. So going to church is a perfect example of such quote-unquote doing. Any unbeliever can walk through these very doors, proclaim they own a ticket to heaven, let's say, 
and remain in their sins. Even an unbeliever can do that. However, a saved person has been given a thirst and hunger for the Word. And when they, quote, hear it in the spiritual sense, God imparts faith to them concerning it. And they become, this is the emphasis, this is what it means to be a doer. Not just someone who does, but be. They become a doer, which is why they show up to Bible class repeatedly. So for one person, it's about them. For the other person, it's about the Word. So this is what James was getting at in James 1.22 when he said, Prove yourselves doers. It refers to James' emphasis on truly saved people being doers. Not just those who, quote, do something like those who are merely hearers who delude themselves. This is a miscalculation that unbelievers that profess to be Christians actually do. So I was reflecting on this, and you should also, uh, especially the more you read your own Bibles on your own time, so much of the epistles are simply the writers trying to sift through the lies that have been made or have made something so very simple, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, utterly complicated. From Thursday, the Spirit dug a little deeper up here on the board, and this should ring a bell. We spent a fair amount of time on this concept of your will be done. This is an attitude in the presence of the sovereign God. Your will be done, as opposed to my will, the flesh, be done. One of Satan's greatest devices is to get even believers to question the simplicity of actually, quote, doing God's will. He uses misdirection, inserting an unholy disrespect for the plainness of walking for his purposes in the way in which believers are created to do. Satan loves misdirection. Ask the wrong questions. Well, I wonder if, if I'll ever walk. No, that's not the question. It's more along the lines of, I wonder what God's going to do with me now that I'm saved. It's going to be exciting to see how I walk in the new self, as a new creature. Because I was dead, and dead things don't even ambulate. Dead things can't walk. Only new creatures can. So it's going to be exciting. What's, he gonna, what's this walk going to be like? But you know for a fact that you will walk. See, Satan wants to upset everything by even asking poor questions. I wonder if I will walk. No, throw that out. You will. You will walk. Why? Because now you're in the light. And now you can see where you're going. You were in total darkness. You were pirouetting. I don't know what's going on. Now you have light. And we have light, you know which way to go because you can actually see. This focus on your will be done is to bring us back to the sovereignty of the Lord God. For the intent is to produce humility in us. Let me say that again. The focus on your will be done, this concept, is to bring us back to the sovereignty of the Lord God. Why? To produce humility. To produce humility. If you have a problem with the sovereignty of the Lord God, you're not going to be very humble. If you think that God doesn't exist in the most extreme cases, that's a lie, of course, but if you think that God doesn't exist, then you're certainly not going to be humbled before Him. 
you are definitely not going to fear something that you think doesn't exist, right? How and where is humility going to enter that equation if you don't think God even exists? In other words, by the grace of God, He not only demands humility, get this, you ready? He not only demands humility, He actually gives us ample cause for it. Do you understand what I just said? He not only demands humility, He actually gives every human being ample cause for it. Therefore, if they refuse the sovereignty of God, they are, as Romans 1.20, I believe, says, without excuse. Without excuse. And that's how He's just in sentencing people to the lake of fire for all eternity. Up here on the board. Humility. If a man is humble, God will help him. He will. If a man is humble. This pattern begins at salvation and continues through all, quote, phases of sanctification. So thinking back even towards salvation and how this actually transpires, the very first spark, let's say, of humility is understanding that God is sovereign and holy and man is not. That's the very first spark, if you would, of humility, is understanding that He's sovereign and holy and we are not. So ask yourselves this, did Jesus... Think about it. Did Jesus emphasize God's sovereignty in Scripture? Go to Luke 12.4. Luke 12.4. It's a good question. I suppose if we're going to look at anyone's thoughts on God's sovereignty, I suppose we should start with Jesus Himself. Seems like the right thing to do to me. Did Jesus emphasize God's sovereignty in Scripture? And ask yourselves, who was a greater evangelizer than Jesus Christ? Are you ready for this? No one. <laughs> Not a big shocker, right? So the greatest evangelist that has ever lived, perfect in every way, what did he have to say about the sovereignty of God? Did he shy away from certain conversations with people? No way. If anything... His conversations were really good at driving people away. Why? For obvious reasons, because they didn't want God. The only reason they were sort of tickled by Jesus was that Jesus was doing miracles that were undeniable. And they're like, how can I do that? Some of them just said, hey, give me those, give me those things so I can go make some more money. It reminds me of uh, Simon, right? Who wanted the the gifts from the Spirit, so that he could go make some more money like he used to do with his trickery. And you see, Jesus was, you know, uh, I think about, um, who was it, Nero? I think it was Nero as well. Um, wanted to understand, um, or wanted, thought Jesus was like a circus clown. Do you understand? And, and liked the, what appeared to him as tricky, but he didn't want Jesus. He just liked the idea of miracles and stuff like that. Anyway. Did Jesus emphasize God's sovereignty in Scripture? Luke 12, 4. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. I mean, I could walk out here tomorrow or today and someone could just not like me and kill me. 
but whatever. And what does Jesus say? Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and then after have no more than they can do. Big deal. I go to heaven. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks for the promo. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Oh. Now, put this into perspective up here in the board. Those are Jesus' words. I mean, obviously, it's almost rhetorical to ask if Jesus Christ taught about the sovereignty of God. True humility. If a person is able to stand in front of God and not be humbled by his sovereignty, that person does not fear God the way they should. God makes himself known for this res very reason. This is the point we're developing, right? Not only does he say, I want you to be humble, but I'm going to give you ample cause to be humble. I'm going to reveal myself to you. Heck, I'm even going to do it through nature. So if a person is able to stand in front of the God of the universe and not be humbled by his sovereignty, that person does not fear God the way they should. They are arrogant, the antithesis of humble. That person is, as Scripture says in Romans 1.20, without excuse. Without excuse. There is no person that has ever lived that hasn't actively... I've given you the original language on this, actively denied God's existence. And then the gospel itself. Otherwise, God would be unjust in sentencing anywhere or anyone to the lake of fire, to permanent separation from himself. So everyone who denies the gospel is without excuse. That's how you net it all out. The recurring question, though, keeps popping back up, doesn't it? Where does that leave man? It's sort of like the disciples. Well, then who can be saved? Where does that leave man with regards to his own salvation, then? And here's what, and don't make a doctrine out of this, but it certainly is appropriate. These two words keep coming back up in our studies, in my own and from the pulpit even. Willingness and availability. Willingness and availability. We've already looked at willingness in the past, of course. As some of you might recall the following, I'll give you the message. James 4, 6, part B says, God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing. We're talking about willingness. God gives grace to the willing humble. Willful implies full of human will, which points to the flesh. Doing. Think of James 1.22. Whereas willing implies not already full, but open to being filled. In other words, I have an empty cup. I know I can't do this. Lord, you fill it. Can't save myself. Figure that out. You save me. That's what a willing person is as opposed to a willful. It's your will be done with a willing person. It's my will be done with a willful person. Willing implies not already full, but open to being filled, which points to the humble. So like I said, willingness and availability keep coming up in my studies, and frankly, our studies, as we continue to contemplate 
the gospel. So on Thursday, we pondered the following. We just dug our heels in a little bit on the idea that God is able and we can only be available, that we can be available. That's the best we're going to do. Only God can make us able, for He is able to do so. We can only avail ourselves to His sovereign will. We are available, available, play on words even. Humility, though, is tantamount to availability. This is how grace works. So I gave you the etymology of the word available up here on the board. A is amount or mount. Veil is be of use or value. Able, obviously, is be able. So if you pluck these things together, you say a veil, a bull. Able to amount to be of use or value. That's what being available means. Being willing. Not willful, willing. I'm available. I'm an empty cup, in other words, so to speak. The only way a person is ever, quote, of use or value to God is by grace. Because we cannot manufacture good fruit. We cannot manufacture anything that is pleasing to God outside of His grace provision. And that, of course, includes salvation. We can never make ourselves righteous. That's what the law really proved to mankind as a whole. Well, here's my standard. You can't meet it, can you? No. And these are just a few things regarding my infinite perfection. And you can't meet this man. So you'll never be righteous unless I make you righteous. That's what the law Moses gave. I mean, that's what it was all about. It was a tutor, a schoolmaster. To what? As Scripture says, lead us to Christ. In other words, again, I'm going to give you reason to be humble. Here's the law. You can't do it. Some of you say you could, but that was a lie. You can't do it. So there's your reason right there again. You can't even do these things as much as you try. So we're never of any use or value unless God makes us that way. Because God is able, man is not. By grace. So we might, again, just highlight this simple fact that humility is tantamount, same thing in other words, to availability. So it's fair to conclude that our, quote, job in salvation is being, let's say, willingly available. How about that? That's our job at salvation, being willingly available. I don't know how it's going to get done. I just understand the scene here. You're sovereign and holy, I'm born depraved. The best I can be is humble, which is the same thing as saying willingly available. And you love the fact that he's willing to and able to help you. That's where gratitude comes in. Think of Frank, even. Able versus available. The greatest example we have in our lives is that God is able to save us in every sense of the word, but we are not. And when I say every sense of the word, obviously I'm talking about not just that salvation proper, but God saves us daily. He delivers us daily. And He is able. In every sense of the word. But we are not. We can only be willingly available, which is really another way of saying be humble. Using a more practical analogy up here on the board, God's good work 
always results in a return on investment, an ROI. He, quote, opens a brand new investment account, then he saves, or when he saves someone, that new, quote, account will have a return. There's many parables that talk about this. Luke 19, 12 to 27, that's the one with the miners, go do business. Some of them did, and he gave them more grace. One didn't, he said, take it away from them. Though that fruit may vary, that's what we learn in the parable of the sower and the soils. That's, for example, Matthew 13, 8. There's a variety of fruits, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. But that entire group of believers actually produce just a matter of maybe volume or quantity. A person who does not bear any, though, this is the point, a person who does not bear any return on investment, a person who is never bearing any fruit, in other words, represents an unsaved person in both parables. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus came to what? Luke, uh, I think it's 19.10, says Jesus came to seek and to what? Save. That's what his whole mission was. He's the greatest evangelist of all time. It was his own gospel. He's called the author and perfecter of our very faith. What do you think he's going to do? What do you think he's going to speak as parables? What, do you, what distinctions do you think he's going to be making in his parables? The wheat and the tares. What was that all about? Right after the soils even. What was that all about? Who's the wheat? Saved. Who's the tares? Unsaved. A humble person accepts the plainly stated truth on the board. An arrogant person will always try to modify it, if not throw it completely out. These, quote, modifier types are, the, are akin to the lukewarm folks that God vomits out of his mouth, as described in Revelation 3. I'll give you that in the message up here on the board. Revelation 3, 15 to 17 in the message I know you inside and out and find little to my liking. You're not cold. You're not hot. Far better to be either cold or hot. You're stale. You're stagnant. You make me want to vomit. You brag. I'm rich. I've got it made. I need nothing from anyone. Oblivious that, in fact, you're a pitiful, blind beggar, threadbare, and homeless. That's the lukewarm individual, the one who hedges bets on their so-called way to heaven, the one who's not actually humble, the one who does things like even go to church so that they, for themselves, so that they can, I don't know, go, you know, checkbox, make, oh, I went to Sunday church. Not seeking in humility, for mercy, under the premise of God's loving kindness, not any of that. It's really about them. In fact, it's always been about them. It's why many people are still unsaved, because they never get out of their own way. Everything they do, even if it's so-called nice, is a hedged bet. I think of Hollywood all the time. It's like, okay, listen, listen, oh, wonderful Hollywood actor or actress, why don't you just go to Africa and do your thing? Why do you got to drag an entourage of film crew with you to show the world how wonderful you are? Who's this about anyways? 
Oh, make sure you get this shot right here. It's like this close. What is that actually in real life? You get some sick kid with a swelled belly and Angelina Jolie's kissing him on the hand. And the camera's like right here. What is that like? Is that not a farce? Is it just me? Honestly, is it just me or is that grotesque? Who's this about anyways? Why do you got to broadcast it to the world? The Bible says don't be blowing your trumpets on street corners. Don't pray in public so you impress your fellow man. Don't do these things. If you're going to do it, go do it then and shut your mouth. Who's this about? It's about them. Do you understand? It's still always about them. Even their so-called goodwill is always about them. And that can even happen in a church. And God says, you know what? I'll vomit you out. Vomit you out. So there are two major divisions. Who are these modifiers? Who takes something as beautiful as the gospel and modify it? Well, the Spirit's been giving us this angle. There's two gospel perversions. People talk about adding to salvation, which is faith plus works equals salvation. You know, add man's works so that he can be saved, pointing to legalism. But how often does anyone talk about the other gospel perversion? Subtracting from salvation. What about that one? Faith minus God's works equals salvation. Pointing to religions that actually subtract some of God's grace in saving man. That's Deuteronomy 4.2. We have our warning in Scripture. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. For the more practical clarity, up here on the board, this other gospel perversion says this, this theology subtracting from salvation, because that's what is required. When I say theology, if you subtract from the gospel, you have to put that perversion, the subtracted um, doctrine, the subtracted scripture somewhere else in your theology now. And so now your theology is completely warped. This theology, subtracting from salvation, supposes that God actually does less than he does when he saves a person. And that's a real tragedy. Now, here's where it gets even more dangerous. If we carry this out beyond just soteriology, which is the fancy word for salvation, the theology of salvation, uh, we rightly conclude up here on the board Anytime we misappropriate Holy Scripture, it is no longer holy. In fact, we have taken something perfect and perverted it. Since God's Word is perfect, the perversion is not. Any derivative, and that means if the gospel is the centerpiece, which it is, any derivative that uses a perverted gospel is also what? A perversion and no longer righteous. God's not a God of confusion, but a God of what? Peace. So if you've got this perverted gospel that you cling to, and then you're out here and you're saying, why am I so confused? Why am I actually anxious or even insecure about my salvation, maybe? Well, you've got to ratchet it back and go, well, what's the problem? Oh, I realize that someone taught me a perverted gospel, that I've been clinging to something that's not actually true. I either added or subtracted from the gospel itself. And when you pervert the gospel, all your other theology perverts. It's on a crooked path, a vector that has been tilted, if you would. Since the subtracting from salvation is the more covert deception, 
The Spirit has given us more to chew on up here on the board. The flesh merely on hold. That's how I look at it. The flesh gets involved some way or another. By subtracting from God's plan for salvation, Satan has managed to propagate a perverted gospel where, quote, believers are saved from the penalty of sin, but nothing practical. It supposes that man later decides for himself as if he has the right on the issue of the sovereignty of sin. If this were true, God didn't really save them from sin itself because we're all born into the sovereignty of sin. Today's perverted gospels, and there's not only one, present grace as accommodating to man. While the true gospel of Jesus Christ is designed, obviously, to save him, it is not designed to accommodate him. Rather, it is designed to accommodate the righteousness of God, the sovereign God of the universe. He doesn't have to be reconciled to us. We are to be reconciled to him. The only way that's ever going to happen is by his own grace. So anytime man's work gets involved in any kind of saving whatsoever, it's a perversion. The gospel accommodates God because God is, after all, the sovereign in the universe. And how quickly man seems to forget about this. In thinking about that even further, it's in this vacuum that man makes two great mistakes up here on the board. Two great mistakes that man makes. Man is notoriously good at dismissing that which he cannot see. He cannot see God, so he assumes sovereignty over himself. He cannot see angels, so he supposes or presumes Satan's no threat. This is, these are two outstanding mistakes that man is notoriously good at. Man likes things that he can see and touch. How can God exist? I don't see him. Okay. There's a lot of things we don't see. Does, has anybody ever in your life ever loved you? I would say then you don't see it, do you? How do you see love? How do you, how do you see love? Anybody ever cared about you? How do you see care? You might say, oh, well, they do this or do that. Geez, that sounds like the Bible. Huh. Works, get it? No, nobody? There's a lot of things we don't see, but we know they exist. So that's a horrible, stupid, don't get me started argument. It's incredible the stuff that so-called intelligent people pontificate over. It's incredible the things. And it really just comes down to the simple fact that they don't want God. They want self. Nonetheless, man is notoriously good at dismissing that which he cannot see. He cannot see God, so he assumes sovereignty over himself. He cannot see angels, so he presumes Satan's no threat. Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Here's where we ended on Thursday. I'm going quickly because most of these things are points of review. Man's attempt at sovereignty. He says, well, I can't see God, so I guess I'll just make um, myself the sovereign. Man does not have the right to dictate how God chooses to save him. We don't have the right. It's that simple. He's sovereign. He's holy. We're not. Nor does he have the right 
to dictate the boundaries of God's grace in doing so. God is sovereign. God chooses. That's offensive to the flesh. It seems like we are bouncing back and forth between our doctrines, and I mean, frankly, we are, but it's not because our curriculum is somehow mangled. I need you to think about this. It's because you must see the big picture here. You have to see the big picture. So let's read another one of Jesus' parables to simplify what the Spirit's been impressing upon us. Go to Luke 18.10. Luke 18.10. You may not get it all. That's fine, folks. My expectation as shepherd here is not that you become amateur theologians. In many ways, that's a very dangerous proposition. I want you to understand what's actually being said. I don't care if you understand even the, you know, the so-called greater language that theologians and even pastors often like to use. I don't care. Honestly, I don't care about certain words and phrases necessarily. I care about you understanding the truth. Not everybody has a, a, a large vocabulary. Some people have very small vocabulary. So? So why would they be precluded from the most wondrous truths in the Bible because they can't memorize someone else's vocabulary? It's simple. It's only complicated because man has made it complicated. It's only complicated for any of you like it's been for me because I've clung to false doctrines over the years and he's having to scrape them away. Luke 18.10 Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So keep it simple in your minds right now. Just envision this whole scene. This is what humility and arrogance looks like in a nutshell, so it's, which is why Jesus, the one who came to seek and to save, made parables like this, stated parables like this, not to overcomplicate things, but to make it very obvious, to make it very obvious who God's going to choose to save and who God's not going to save. He makes it very obvious. And this is the greatest evangelist of all time. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I can't help but laugh, I'm sorry. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean... Isn't it obvious what Jesus was trying to convey here? Isn't it? I mean, everybody can relate to that scene, I'm assuming. It's not a difficult parable. It's obvious. What was he trying to say? It's really very simple. The, the problem is the surgery is complicated because extracting false doctrines is difficult. That's what it comes down to. And don't blame, you know, your ex-pastors or your ex people that you studied under, or this book or that book. Don't blame them. Blame the world, too. Where do, you, where do most people nowadays, especially children, where do they get their doctrines from? Hollywood. 
The same morons who are filming kissing babies in the jungles. The same ones who say, it's all about you. The same ones who say, oh boy, I better be good enough or else God's not going to be pleased and I won't get to heaven because somehow the, the, the scales are going to be tipped against me. That's what Hollywood said. When's the last time you ever heard Hollywood movie, except for maybe a Christian movie, ever state the truth about the gospel? It's always about being good enough. It's always about some angry God that's going to slam you down if you're not good enough. Well, who the hell decides who's good enough? You, man? You, man? Who's going to do it? This Pharisee, this moron? I'm glad I'm not like them because I'm not an adulterer. I'm not, you know, blah, blah, blah. That's the scale that person was using, was it not? But Jesus said, no, I want the humble person. I don't want the one who thinks they're going to be good enough or someday they're, they're hoping to be good enough so that God somehow chooses them at the 11th hour because they were actually good enough. I've heard and seen and read many, many people at the end of their lives. Many, many of them are very wealthy people. Well, Doc says I have six months to live. Um, I guess I need to do a few good things now so that I make the grade. So they start, like, you know, spending their money philanthropically, spent, you know, giving away their money as if God's going to be somehow pleased and let them into heaven because now they're a good person. Nobody's good. We're all born depraved. Only by the grace of God. Amen? Yeah. But that's what Hollywood presents. Better be good enough. Better be good enough. Who the heck's good enough? I'm not. You're not. That's a lie. But the flesh likes it because it can get on a treadmill and be the person who does the good works. The person who's going to make themselves righteous. Why? Because it's all about themselves, always. So isn't it obvious what Jesus was saying here? To me, it's very obvious. The only difficulty is that the surgery is complicated. That's it. The surgery is complicated. In this parable, Jesus says that the humble went, the humble man went to his house justified rather than the other. So up here on the board, let's talk big picture again. What about election? What about choosing? Election and choosing are pretty much synonyms in the Bible. God saves the humble. Who got justified? Who was ju justified between the Pharisee, the so-called self-righteous person, or the one that was on his knees beating his breast? Who's the one who God chose? The humble one. The humble one. When the Bible speaks specifically about justification, it is implied that God has chosen them for salvation. Therefore, justification comes to the humble. That's what we just read. It's not a simple, or it's not a complicated concept, Luke 18, 10 to 14. Man does not judge himself justified, ever. That's God's sovereign right. We need to get that into our heads. Man does not judge himself justified. That's what the Pharisee thought. Ever. That's God's sovereign right, because God chooses in another account of Jesus' teaching his disciples, he speaks plainly about who chooses who in God's plan for salvation. In fact, he uses a specific word worth investigating. Go to John 15, 16. John 15, 16. Not surprisingly, Jesus once again, the man who came to seek and save, is talking about people being saved. Who chooses who? How does this happen? 
And he was obviously in the midst often of people who were self-righteous, who thought they could actually, almost in a sense, in an arrogant sense, demand that God save them because they never failed the law, which is a complete delusion. But that's what they thought. And you've got a lot of people out there that think that very thing. They're deluded into thinking that they can be righteous enough somehow. I don't know, take the Ten Commandments. Oh, I never do these things. I always keep these Ten Commandments. And God loves me because I keep the Ten Commandments. That's not how it works. That's a person trying to be self-righteous. John 15, 16. It's the same person who will say, Oh, well, that person's a thief. They're going to hell. Oh, that person's an adulterer. They're going to hell. That person, okay, I've heard stories this bad. That person smokes cigarettes. What? The body is a holy temple. And if you smoke cigarettes, God's not pleased, and you're going to hell. (laughs) It's actually laughable. But I've heard people that believe that at some point in their spiritual career. That's how bad it is out there. John 15, 16 You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. I chose, up here on the board from ek lego, up here on the board, means to elect, is translated as such in the New Testament, Mark 13, 20, Matthew 24, 22, 24, 24, 24, 31, Colossians 3:12 refers to those God chose to save personally. So God chooses. This is his choice. But the nice thing is that if you're chosen, you're appointed. That's the themi in the Greek. To put, place, lay, set, fix, establish, destined. In other words, if, you're, if he saves you, you're literally destined. In context, refers to Jesus's, the God-man's, assigning the privilege of who would go and bear fruit. In other words, if you're chosen, you are appointed to go bear fruit. That's how we started class. You're appointed. You will. It's not a matter of, you know, will you? It's a matter of more of like how and when, I guess, you know? Like, but that's what you've been appointed. You've been destined, predestined, to be more accurate. This removes any pretense of human works. Recall, not too long ago, we did a solid study on predestination. We'll try to make the connection there as well. Again, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. So you see, there's much more to this than simply a man, quote, deciding to, quote, be saved as if, It were his choice in the first place. That's a hard pill for some people to swallow, especially the self-righteous. Because the self-righteous are so used to getting their own way that they think they can sort of shoehorn their way into heaven. They're, They're so willful, not willing, willful, that they'll actually like a typical attorney. You know, you've heard many stories about so called good attorneys doing something completely unrighteous by the law. That's what an arrogant person does. That's what the Pharisees tried to do. That's what any willful person will do. They'll read the Bible like an attorney, 
And so you see right here, it says you have to save me if I do this, this, and this, and this. And they'll take the Bible and they'll say, yes, I demand to be saved. I demand a seat in heaven because I did X, Y, and Z. Man doesn't decide. That's the whole point. That's not even a humble heart. That's just a person trying to what? Be self-righteous again. Save themselves again. Even try to get God on his back. The way many lawyers do. They put an imperfect set of laws, whether they're state or government, or federal, excuse me, they'll put it on his back. And when they do that, because they're so masterful, like Satan is, attorney, murderers go free. Unrighteous things are allowed. That's what a good attorney can do. So there's much more than to all of this than man simply deciding to, quote, be saved, as if it was his choice in the first place. That's what the Spirit's trying to impress upon us. I mean, as just a side note, as a goofy side note, I mean, if that was the case, if man were, to, if man were able to decide, wouldn't everybody just say, I decide to be saved? <laughs> I, me, decide to go to heaven. Wouldn't everybody do that? Yeah. But we know the gate is narrow and not everyone goes to heaven. So where's the, you know what I'm saying? That's the problem. Man doesn't decide. God decides. I mean, who wouldn't decide to go to heaven? I mean, okay, if those are my two options, right? Like there's hell and there's heaven. Well, who the heck wants to go to hell? I want to go to heaven. <laughs> Just a goofy side note. Scripture tells us that God chooses salvation, not man. He even inclines them towards salvation itself. It's amazing what God does for, man, for fallen man. He even inclines man to salvation. I'll give you something I like from Barnes on John 15, 16, up here on the board. It was not that by nature they were more inclined than others to seek God, or that they had any native goodness to recommend them to Him. But it was because he graciously inclined them by his Holy Spirit to seek him. It's incredible. Man is so without excuse. He graciously inclined them by his Spirit to seek them, to speak, seek him, excuse me. The grace of Christ, up here on the board, went before them, commenced the work of their personal salvation, and thus God in sovereign mercy chose them as his own. Whatever Christians then possess, they owe to God. And by the most tender and sacred ties, they are bound to be His followers. We just have to be willingly available. It's so fundamentally simple. But we don't get there unless we understand that God is sovereign and holy, and we are not. That's the first spark of humility. So this is what it means to be, quote, chosen and appointed by our great shepherd himself, bearing fruit as a result to God's glory. Digging a little deeper now. Let's read it again. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. And just reflecting a little further, the greatest holy, quote, work of all, by grace, of course, is to love. And look at the next verses. 
What's the greatest work? How do you know? John talks about this uh, in his epistle. How do you know you're saved? Because you have a love for the brethren. If you don't have a love for the brethren, John says you're not saved. Not Pastor Ed. You can fake it. You can pretend you have a love for the brethren. But if you don't actually have a love for the brethren, then John says you're not in the body. I didn't say that. So it makes sense that you've been appointed, predestined to go and bear fruit. And what's the greatest fruit of all? To love one another. That's one of the great, that's probably the great litmus test of all litmus tests. Am I saved or not? Do I have love for the brethren? Or am I just a self-absorbed jackass, like I always was? And now i got a little badge that says, you know, Hi, hello, my name's Ed, and I get to go into heaven. What is this? I mean, I'm still a jackass. I still have no love. I haven't been changed at all. I love myself. I don't love other people. I love me. I might do things for me that look like love. I might I mean, tell somebody, oh, Grandma, I love you. Oh, you're such a good boy. Here's five bucks. Right? You know what I'm getting at? Man, I really want that bicycle. Mom and Dad, have I told you lately how much I love you? Right? Kids are funny, right? They start, and it's so funny, they think the parents don't realize it. it's so funny. All of a sudden, they become lovey-dovey when they have needs. Right? <laughs> TJ. Right? It's the funniest thing. But that's just faking it. And you, I mean, you might fool a parent, a, a fleshly, you know, a, a human parent like me. But you're not going to fool God in heaven. To him, it's a joke. It's like, what are you doing? You know, that's not real love. You don't actually have real love for the brethren. You love yourself. You do everything for yourself. You're still a self-centered individual, depraved still. You haven't been changed at all. You just got better at it, better at convincing other human beings. But didn't I? No, I never knew you. The greatest holy work of all by grace is to love. Verse 17. This I command you, that what? You love one another. But that's after the preceding verse. It says, I chose you, I, you've been appointed to go bear fruit. The greatest fruit of all is to love one another. So what does he say? I command you, no command in the Bible is ever not preceded by grace. He's never going to ask that of a person who isn't saved. He's not going to expect that from a person who he hasn't first chosen. And saved, you get it? This is how it goes. I'm going to save you, I'm going to choose you, appoint you, that you go bear fruit. What does that look like? I command you to love one another. Well, how can you command something from me? Because I've made you new. And the new creature, that's what, they, what it does. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hates you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Another litmus test. Does the world love you? Honestly. Does the, if, if, you, if, if you're, let's call your heart of hearts, for lack of a better term, if your heart was laid bare in front of the world, would it reject you or would it love you? Because if your heart is laid bare and it looks just and smells, you know, like Cheech and Chong, looks like, smells like, must be. Poop, right? If you lay, your, if you lay your, your soul out and the world goes, love this guy, you got a problem. If, you're, if every activity you do besides church is trying to better yourself or get the world to love you even more, 
so that you can advance in your own little way, however that might look like. You need to think long and hard about who you're living for. Is your heart changed or not? Those are the kinds of questions. And Jesus was not um, shy on this subject at all. Why? Because that's what's required. What do you want me to say? If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. That's the flip side. If you were to lay bare yourself, and the world goes, oh, I don't like you at all. You repulse me. You are a believer. You know, you're, then you know. That's John, the apostle. Let me just say this before we move on, maybe to help some of you clear out any residual confusion caused by false doctrines still lingering in your souls. Up here on the board, exercising faith. Let us not always try to rationalize God's supernatural work in man, especially at salvation. Let us rather accept what the Word of God states plainly at face value, like we just read. I mean, we just read those things. What else do you want me to say? It's my job to walk you through Scripture. It's my job to point the obvious things out. It's not my job to confuse you. I'm trying to take away a lot of confusion, which means as a surgeon I have to go in to the area of confusion and surgically remove it. That's the hardest part of my job. The easy part of my job is teaching the truth because it's very contiguous. I mean, it's not hard at all. It's actually really easy. So let's not exercise our human rationalism. Let's just take things at face value. If that's what, if that's what the Lord Jesus Christ said, then that's what he meant to say. So this is going back to our previous point. This is why the addition to the series, the difficult passages, has been caught from, or has been taught from this pulpit up here on the board. Missing faith. Man is only confused because his quest to dominate God. In his quest to dominate God, he has attempted to rationalize, hyperanalyze, and over-categorize the surpassing, that's that Greek word, hyperbolo, which means transcendent, the surpassing riches of God's grace, Ephesians 2.7. That's where the confusion comes in. If we understand grace, then we understand that faith is a work of grace by God in man. And we must not add or subtract from any of it. Since our message title is Grace and Works, let us now turn our attention to works in the Bible. So 14 lessons for the most part on grace. Let's get this straight. Now let's turn our attention to works. If you got this straight, I promise you, if you keep in mind the first 14 lessons then works is like a layup, literally. It's literally a layup. It's obvious. It's, in retrospect, sometimes, you know, you might quizzically look back. You might say, why was I ever confused? It's because you had grace mangled a bit in your soul. So we're going to turn our attentions, our attention to works in the Bible. By now we realize that the Bible teaches us plainly that true faith produces good works. Confusion exists today in churches as a result of perversions of grace. 
and therefore the very gospel of Jesus Christ as we've been learning. A great example is found in James 2, 17-20, where James speaks very plainly. As such, those who support perverted gospels remain confused about such passages, which is really unfortunate. If you have a perverted gospel, when you go to read James 2, you're confused. You're like, well, what's he really saying? Why am I confused here? Why does that seem like James is talking about human works? Or why am I confused? Every time the word works comes up, what was James getting at? And you have to mangle it. Go to James 2.17. I promise if you keep in mind the simplicity and the fullness of grace at salvation and understand Jesus' own words when he just, we just read it. I chose you and appointed you that you would what? Go bear fruit. Okay, so let's apply that to what James was saying, who was a disciple of Jesus. James was Jesus' brother, after all. James 2.17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is necros, is dead. Sounds like Ephesians 2.1, being by itself. Dead. What a dead thing. What are dead things able to do? Nothing. They're dead. So what's the problem then? What, why would you be confused at all? You shouldn't be. But there are people out there that have clung to perversions of the gospel itself, not understanding all that God does at salvation, all of the good work. They, when they read James 2.17, they get all confused. They get mangled and tangled. Why? Because they don't actually have the gospel right. So and then they, 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 what perverts the gospel? Grace. A mangled grace. And if you don't understand grace, then works are mangled. Because grace always precedes works. And nowhere is this more important to understand than with the gospel. What does God do actually when he saves us? He does all these things. Not just bring a gavel down that judicially says you're saved. And here's your little ticket, your name tag to heaven. Don't lose it. He does a lot of things. Stupendous things, things that we don't even realize yet. But we saw what Jesus just said. Look at verse 17 again. Even so, if faith has no works, it's dead, being by itself. But someone may say, well, you know, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, true faith will always produce what? Good works. That's what Jesus said in the parables, not just of the soils, but also in the miners, etc., etc. That a person who's truly chosen by God for salvation will produce works. And if they don't, then it's dead. Their faith is dead, and a dead faith cannot save. That's what James is saying. Shouldn't be confusing at all, is it? I don't think so. He said, show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Big deal. You believe certain aspects. Wow. God chooses. You don't demand. You're not some lawyer like Satan who gets to demand that God save you. Big deal. Verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Why? Necros. It's dead. What do you expect out of a dead thing? Dead things are useless. Last time I checked, they don't do anything. 
And when you're talking about spiritual matters and being made righteous and being saved, a dead faith is unable. But you see, that's what a lot of people have. They have a lot of faith, but it's actually not faith from God. The faith is actually in themselves to execute the laws of God. Sound like the Pharisees? You get it? They might be religious even. Their faith is dead, though. Why? Because it wasn't a gift from God. It was a gift from themselves, for themselves, to themselves, for their own sanctification. I guess I'll ramp up. I guess I'll ramp up on faith today. Getting late. He's got one, the docs that have six months left. Better ramp up on faith. Better show the world that I have faith, that I'm a God-fearing man. Better do this, that, and the other, blah, blah, All these things I should have been doing for 75 years, but, you know, I was too self-absorbed. Now I'm really not self-absorbed. What? This is the continuation of your own self-absorption. Now you're just trying to impress God or what? Squeeze your way, shoehorn your way into heaven by doing something by man-made faith? There is such a thing. Not all faith is godly. He says, you foolish, do you not recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? So here's a perfect time to transition to what the Spirit's been saying concerning grace and works. Up here on the board, again, this is to tie 14 lessons worth of getting grace correct to now works. Grace and works. It's impossible to understand works in the Bible if your concept of grace is limited. A limited viewpoint means a limited perspective, which can only lead to confusion. This confusion is not from God. 1 Corinthians 14, 33, God is not a God of confusion. Nor is any pain involved in extracting it the surgeon's fault. So don't look at me and say, gee, Pastor, you know, I was doing great. Until Pastor Ed started talking about stuff. I, don't, I wasn't even thinking about that stuff. Well, maybe that's the problem. Satan's an angel of light. False doctrines aren't always glaring. They're not always quote-unquote obvious. You know, the greatest military exercises are, are, are most often covert, not overt. Covert means you can't see them. You don't understand that it's actually happening until it's too late. Until you realize, maybe close to before it's too late, that your faith was dead. Some of you have actually... This has actually happened to you in the last year or so. You realize that your faith was dead. You weren't even saved. Thanks be to God for these kinds of lessons. Amen? Thanks be to God. I mean, what is this all about? If Jesus came to seek and to save, what, we, what should we be doing? <laughs> right? We should be hitting this thing full on, straight on. Oh, but I, I, I can't. I got work. I got children. I got... Cats and dogs, I got, oh, I got to make apple pie. I got to, I got to, oh, I got to make sure all fantasy football. I got to trade. I got to get the waiver wire. I got to get it. Oh, my God, I got so much stuff to do. How can I, uh, isn't that, isn't that people? I don't even know where that started. Anybody remember? No. Oh. But it's not my fault. I think that's where it started. It's not my fault. That you're confused. Oh, that you're in, you know, la-la land. You know, la 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 I don't want to hear it. La, la, la. It's just easier for me to stay in my religion. la la la, la. I just want to pretend until I die. La-la-la. And hope, to, hope God lets me in. La, la. But should we be okay with that? No. We shouldn't be okay with that at all. If you, 
This is the point that I've always made with people that date unbelievers that are believers. I don't get it. I mean, I get maybe you get saved after and the Bible says stay with that person. I get that. But what if you're like a believer and you say you're a believer and then you start dating an unbeliever? How does that even work? How are you not crying every day of your life for the so-called person that you love? What is attractive about this person, after all? They don't like the one person that supposedly matters most in your life, Jesus Christ, your best friend. How does that work? Does that not confuse the heck out of anybody? I'm totally confused by that. Totally confused by it. Only God knows the truth about such things. I don't know. But it's confusion. And see, that kind of confusion is not from God. The Bible says, what fellowship does a believer have with Belial? The Bible says we ought to steer ourselves towards ourselves in the body, encouraging ourselves, especially those of the faith, for as long as it's called what? Today. Hmm. So don't look at the surgeon. I'm just doing my job. And I'm not going to lie. And some of you need to stop lying to yourselves to make your lives easier or more accommodating because we've learned this. This isn't about accommodating you. This is about accommodating God. We bring glory to God by accommodating His perfect righteousness, by living in His perfect commands, by orienting to His sovereignty. Do you get it? This isn't about you. And if your entire life is dominated by you, you might not even be saved. That's what the Bible says, not Pastor Ed. And if you're confused by any of that, what would you like me to say? Stick with it. That's the best I can say to you. Please, stick with it. If you, I mean, i got a kid over here. He's brand new. He's don't, you know. I'm so sorry to point you out. How are you, by the way? Good, good, thanks. People coming in, they need to hear this stuff. It may not be comfortable. It may not be comfortable. It's not supposed to be comfortable. Do you get it? It's not supposed to be comfortable. Why? Because we're born in a situation that's actually literally opposed to Jesus Christ himself. It's not supposed to be comfortable. You're supposed to be made uncomfortable. You're supposed to be made uncomfortable. Oh, but I can't do that because, you know, then maybe I won't get invited for Thanksgiving dinner next year. Who cares? This is about someone's eternal life. So what if you're offensive? Big deal. Hate. I don't care if you hate me or like me. I don't care. Who cares? This isn't about me. This is about Jesus Christ. This is about the gospel. This is about the good news. Do you understand what I'm getting at? Anyways. To put it in perspective, this is a good work that's going on in this building right now. Why? Because it's by grace. Any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. I hope you see the direct relationship here, up here on the board. Anytime God's grace is reduced in scope and effect, it actually perverts the gospel of Jesus Christ, manufacturing a different gospel. This false gospel may proclaim grace because it is more accommodating, but it's a deceptive trap. 
Grace, we talked about this this past week, grace does not equal accommodating. The perfect example is suffering. We know we're going to suffer if we're children of God. We know this. And God is a gracious God. And last time I checked, suffering ain't all that accommodating to my desires, right? You get what I'm saying? Grace is not accommodating, so wipe that out. Grace is what God wants to do for you. And if that means take a ball-peen hammer and go, oh, ping, ping, then that's what has to happen. And it may not be fun. It may not be enjoyable. You may be like, I totally don't like this. Good. Good. Now you know what grace looks like, all of it. Not just some crippled little dude that crawls off a cross and gets on his knees and begs you so that he can save you. That's not Jesus Christ. And for the record, if Jesus was standing here right now, he'd be, frankly, probably harsher than I could ever be on this topic. So it's interesting because these false gospels proclaim grace because it's more accommodating, but it's a trap. So I guess I'll have to pick a spot here. I'm running out of time. Just consider the churches and denominations you know of that are confused about works. Consider the ones that you know that either add human works to salvation or subtract God's work from salvation. Either one. Consider the churches or denominations or whoever that are actually confused about where works fit in God's grace plan for mankind. And what you'll find behind the curtain is that they have the gospel messed up and that it is the direct result of perverting God's grace. That's what it comes down to. If they're confused about works, they have the gospel screwed up. And they have the gospel screwed up because they got grace perverted. They either added or subtracted from the gospel itself, from the good news about God's plan for saving man. And if you're confused about those things, of course you're going to be confused about works, because works come after grace. So if this is messed up, if the foundation is goofed up, what do you think that goes on top of it? Of course it's going to be goofed up. Right? Like Jesus said, build a house on sand, and the winds come, and the rain's blue, and guess what happens to the house? And great was its what? Fall. Build it on the rock? The truth? Sturdy. No confusion. Why? Because God's not a God of confusion. The people in that house are at peace. You look outside, hey, look at that pretty pretty uh, storm cloud. The person on the sand is like, oh my God, hopefully that cloud doesn't come over here because we're dead. The person inside of the Lord's house is secure, is at peace, knowing that they are protected knowing that they'll never lose their salvation. Because God, the sovereign, able being in the universe, chose them. And if he says, no one's ever going to pluck you out of my hand, then guess what? It's not going to happen. So that person in that house is very secure. How much security do you think the world gives an individual? Not the, not the counterfeit draw 
Do this and you'll, be, you'll find happiness. Do that and you'll find happiness. And then they keep moving the needle, of course, right? Do the, buy a new car, you'll get happy. Buy a new, work harder at work. Get promoted. Do this thing. Buy a new cow. You know, trade the seed for the cow. You know, get a beanstalk. Do all these crazy things that make no sense. It's probably more likely that, anyways, that would happen and you find happiness, true happiness in the world. Do all these crazy things and you'll find happiness. Do this, do that. Get a family, you know, whatever. Do all these things. There's no peace in that. There's no happiness in that. There's no contentment in that stuff. Why? Because it's a lie. The only place you're ever going to find any peace in your life is inside that house that was built on the rock. And who's the rock? Amen. I'll give you this last thing. And I'll close. Actually, i got a video on God's ability. Grace and works. If your version of grace doesn't include all facets of God's plan for salvation, then your gospel is surely suspect. By grace, God reveals fallen man's darkness and sin to the unbeliever even, for that man cannot see out of darkness. Only the light from God can illumine or quicken, as we say theologically, man's perspective by grace. This is the beginning of God's plan for salvation. That's how it works. Even the very spark, even making humility something that befalls you, for lack of a better way to say it, even bringing you to your knees is grace. It's in that moment that a person says yes or no. Either I'm going to go to my knees or I'm going to choose self-righteousness. Either I'm going to beat my breast for mercy or I'm going to point fingers like a self-righteous jackass. That's what it means. This one means to be willingly humble. This one's willful arrogance. It's that simple. God is able. Amen? All right, let me show you a video.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for making a day like today something to embrace, for it is truly a grace gift from you. We thank you, Father, for giving us this time to fellowship together as family in the unity of the faith and for giving us so much more even, so much more than we can even comprehend or even dream up, Father. Your grace is so abundant that it is surely as your word says. For this reason we bow our knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant us, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.